Brett Favre is wrapped up in the largest public corruption scandal in Mississippi history. Plus, later we have the founder of an innovative sneaker brand making waves in the industry. It's Thursday, October 12th. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Favre is trying to scramble away from his legal troubles. Joining me now to discuss is front office sports senior reporter, AJ Perez. Welcome, AJ. Thanks for having me back. So why does the Mississippi Department of Human Services want Brett Favre's tax returns? Yeah, there, there's a couple of different reasons. So one is basically all of the text messages were Favre, uh, which has come out during this lawsuit. It's been going on about a year and a half. Um, that he's he said things in, in these text messages like paying for three-fourths of this volleyball facility at Southern Miss, um, when really that, according to the information that's been released, you know, the $5 million came from federal TANF funds. So that would be impossible for you know, about a $6 million facility for a farm to pay three-fourths of that. Um, and so they, so they want to get his tax returns uh, for that. And also, there's a drug company, Prevacus, that um, was also funded with, with TANF funds that Brett Farb was the biggest investor in. And they got money there, so I think they they're they're looking at the four or five years of tax returns just to see if that if it if it either backs up what Favre is saying or if it kind of uh, kind of really doesn't. And uh, one way to, to to do that is it, in a you know in a fraud case or a public corruption case is to see what was filed with the federal government on those tax returns. So just to zoom out a little bit here to get the full picture. And we, we've covered this previously, but it's been a little while. So what is Favre accused of exactly? Uh, Favre is, uh, there's three things. Uh, he's linked to about uh, 7 to $8 million of these TANF funds, these federal funds that go to the neediest families in the nation. Um, the states get to, you know, they get block grants from the federal government and, the, and it's the states, the Mississippi, for example, here, you know, that gets to decide what to do with that money. There are restrictions. One of those restrictions is no brick and mortar. Brick and mortar means construction. So he, those funds should not have been able to use for a, for a volleyball facility at Southern Miss where, his, where he went to school and his daughter played the sport at the time. Um, there, that was not uh, that was not a proper way to use federal TANF funds, um, you know. And Southern Miss is also involved. The Southern Miss um, Athletic Foundation is one of the, of the more than forty defendants, along with Brett Favre, in this lawsuit filed by the state welfare agency, looking to recoup about seventy five plus million dollars of not just not just Favre, but just so many other people who use this kind of alleged use this kind of scheme. So $5 million for the, uh, that, that Favre lobby for, and the state says that Favre promised to fund entirely this, this volleyball center. Um, then $2 million, roughly $2 million to that drug company, Prebicus, um, using TANF funds that company is now defunct. Um, and they had two concussion type products that never came close to coming to market. And then $1.1 million for speaking fees for speeches he didn't give. He did repay that $1.1 million. And so now uh, the Department of Human Services in Mississippi is after his tax returns. What's Favre doing to try to stop them from getting these forms? Yeah, I went today. I went through all the – there's been three or four filings from, from, from Favre's lawyers going back to late – or actually last fall, so fall of 2022 – They've been fighting this entire way. Everything. Either Farb doesn't have the text they're saying, Farb doesn't remember, 
is is another one, or is they or it's it's just a broad overreach. You're asking for like including with the tax returns. That's a broad. You're you're looking. It's like a fishing expedition. But they didn't call it that, but that's basically what they're kind of hinting at. They have fought every single every single um, request, every single subpoena from the uh, from the the lawyers for the state welfare agency consistently, and uh, it, it's and it. it basically have turned over very little information. And now he's turning over, over information that's redacting. Um, even though this pretty much all future filings are going to go under seal. So we don't have access to him until very, very much later. Um, you know, he's redacting information that, that really would, would, uh, that was needs needed to verify, you know, if it was an email or a text message for so-and-so and so-and-so. And it, it, it's, it's just, he hasn't really provided much information and now it's going to be up to the judge I think uh, I think a lot of people who follow the case, like I do, are shocked. It's kind of a motion to compel is coming this late after over a year of asking for all this information that they're finally going to the judge and saying, "Hey, Barb's not cooperating. Can you do something?" You know, yeah, you know, this is this is a civil case, not criminal. So, you know, a, a contempt citation would be would would is still unlikely, but they're gonna the judge could could actually you know step forward and uh, and and order. Um, Farb or Farb's lawyers to release uh, more information, including the, including the tax returns, because Farb has said consistently that, or Farb's lawyers have said consistently that he doesn't have the information, doesn't have the text, doesn't have the emails. Federal tax returns he has to have, so that's something that uh, that's going to be a pretty major fight. And that it, and if the if the uh, if the state lawyers uh, for the welfare agency get that, that's going to be pretty major. And. You know, obviously, there's a number of hurdles to go here, but what's the downside risk for Favre here? Like, you know, what what could happen to him if if things don't go his way? The big thing is a deposition. That deposition was originally scheduled for later this month, October 26. We found out a couple of days ago it got pushed back to December. Um, and uh, so that the big question is if you know, my sources say that there still could be a federal indictment at some point, possibly. There's an investigation that's still ongoing. My sources are telling me, uh, you know, th- that is huge because anything he says in, the, in that deposition, where he, where his lawyers said a couple months ago he will not take the fifth, that's going to be major if there is a criminal, if, if there's an indictment, or it can help or hurt the investigation, depending on what he says. That's like the big unknown. What will Farf say in that deposition? All right, fascinating stuff. AJ Perez, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, who is in the conversation for most impactful person in sports in the last decade, is set to have his contract renewed by his 32 bosses, the NFL team owners. The contract negotiations have been a little slower to finish up than many expected, but it's possible that Goodell is seeking to use his very impressive tenure to take his contract to unprecedented heights. Goodell took the job in 2006, and since then, total team revenue has roughly tripled to $18.6 billion last year. That's driven by its media deals with Disney, NBC, CBS, Fox, Amazon, and YouTube TV, which bring in close to $12 billion annually. Under Goodell, the league has expanded internationally and dominated other sports in the U.S. It hasn't all been good news. He was also commissioner during some major scandals, including the league's handling of the impact of concussions and then providing different settlement amounts based on race, the Saints Bounty Gate scandal, and the ugly situation with Ray Rice, among others. But through it all, he's made team owners very rich, and now he's likely looking at a three-year extension that would take Goodell to the spring of 2027 when he'll be 68 and around $700 million in career earnings. With the NHL open to expansion, prospective buyers can look west to see how quickly a franchise can turn into a hugely valuable property. 
Per Forbes' most recent rankings, the average NHL team is now worth over a billion dollars. At the top of the list are the teams you would expect, with the top five all coming from original six franchises, starting with the New York Rangers at $2.2 billion, followed by the Toronto Maple Leafs, Montreal Canadiens, Chicago Blackhawks, and Boston Bruins at $1.4 billion. The final original six team, the Detroit Red Wings, are middle of the pack at a billion dollars. But the most intriguing entry on the list is the Seattle Kraken, who joined the league in 2021 and are already the 10th most valuable team at just over a billion. They followed the Vegas Golden Knights, who joined in 2017 and are ranked 16th at $965 million, but these rankings came out last December, before Vegas won the Stanley Cup in June. If the Knights were sold today, the price would undoubtedly top a billion dollars. Up next, I spoke to the founder of Moolah Kicks, Natalie White. White noticed that a lot of women's shoes were actually just smaller versions of men's shoes and weren't made for women's feet and bodies, which in turn was causing a higher prevalence of injuries among female basketball players. That inspired her to do something, and that conversation is coming up next. I'm joined now by founder and CEO of Moolah Kicks, Natalie White. Welcome, Natalie. Hi, Owen. Thank you for having me. Great to have you. So to start, what is Moolah Kicks and why did you start it? Moolah Kicks is the number one brand in women's basketball, and we are leading the category by making sneakers that are built by and for female ballers. I started the brand three years ago because we had girls, women, and female hoopers playing in shoes fit for the male foot form and named after a game other than ours. And so in the last three years, we have grown from nothing to 450 stores now with a sneaker for every position. And we are really resonating with the market because of the vision that we have for women's hoops. And this almost feels like a silly question, but how are men and women's feet shaped differently? The female foot form and the male foot form actually differ in four key areas. So we have a narrower heel, a more shallow lateral side, which is essentially the top of your foot, a higher arch, and a slimmer width. And so they sound minor, but on the inside of the shoe, all shoes are made on what's called a last, which is essentially a mold on the inside of your shoe. And... When those factors and differences combine on that mold, it puts girls and women more at risk for the knee, ankle, and leg injuries that are so common in women's basketball when they're playing and performing in shoes, unisex, children's, men's, that are all shaped with the male foot form. So you can go to pretty much any sneaker brand website and find a huge women's section. How did you realize that there's actually this gap in the market? Well, when you go online and when I first, I remember, so twofold. First, when you go online and you look at their women's basketball section, it's actually a ton of men's shoes that come up. So that search already kind of gets you on your heels. But when I first had the idea for the company, it was because I was struck by this ad in which four WNBA players were actually in a paid advertisement holding out sneakers named after their NBA counterparts, which were fit for men. So you don't have to look too hard um, to find that even some of the top players in the entire world are still wearing sneakers fit for the male foot form named after someone else's game. 
Yeah, and that gets into another thing I wanted to ask you about. So there's the biomechanical part of this. Uh, there's also sort of a cultural part to it as yeah. well. So how are you positioning yourself in, in that way? Well, what's so great about the Moolah brand is women's basketball is absolutely all we care about. This company is, we are solely here to showcase the hype, performance, energy, and talent that is in this game. And I think so often in the past, we've seen everyone really add on women's basketball as a second option, a second tier, a second option, and then kind of get treated as a second class. And what's exciting about the Moolah brand is we really don't care what happens in men's basketball. We are only focused on female hoopers and our girls and women's basketball category. Yeah, and we're seeing this huge rise in popularity in women's sports and women's basketball very much included. Uh, What are you doing specifically to make sure you're part of that growth? Absolutely. Well, I think brands like Moolah are very important in also sparking that growth. So what's great about this brand is that we have a symbiotic relationship with women's basketball, where as we grow, women's basketball grows. And as women's basketball grows, this brand grows because we are, as the only brand that is focused in this category, every dollar we earn naturally goes back into opportunities for players, for coaches, and for all stakeholders in the game through events, marketing marketing initiatives, or a deeper product offering. And likewise, when they buy a pair of sneakers, the company grows, and we can then put more money back into those things that is, that's fueling our game. So we've been really excited to see the rise in women's basketball and there's there's no words for it. You know that if you're in this, if you're in women's basketball, you can feel this movement that's happening. And we're very thrilled to be at the forefront. Yeah, and actually, while we're on that, the WNBA just announced. Well, yeah, that they're they are expanding to the Bay Area. Reports are that Portland is also very likely coming in as well. Just any reaction to that news? It's awesome. More opportunities for female hoopers is always a good thing. And we've seen the rise of the NCAA. We've seen the rise of the W. We're seeing the rise of Moolah Kicks. And all of these components are so important in this next step of women's basketball, which is creating a culture and image that's ours to own, that's not compared to the men's game, any other sport, but is valued for what we're bringing to the table independently. And how are athletes part of your overall strategy? They're everything. We exist to serve the female baller. And so everyone from our high school, our elementary school athletes, now with our kids press break model, we have college players, we have pro players. Everyone is so integral, our streetball players, to this Moolah Kicks movement. And it really started with our over 60 NIL players, which has now expanded to a number well above that, along with our two WNBA players who continue to spread this Moolah movement and what we're doing into their communities. But I'd say that at the forefront of everything we do is making sure that athlete feedback and perspective is baked into our products, our messaging, and serving what they're asking for. Yeah, and actually I'm trying to remember the order of events here, but it seems like 
you you timed this maybe better than than you even realized when the company started just in that I, was nil a thing yet when uh when you founded the company okay yeah and uh and the rise in women's sports is kind of this ongoing trajectory that doesn't have a specific moment, but it, it certainly picked up in the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, how has your, you know, the, the spreadsheets and everything else, how have those shifted, you know, just in the, the beginnings of the, your young company? Well, when the company was founded in 2020, the most recent NCAA championship had 3.6 million views. And when you flash forward to that same game in 2023, LSU versus Iowa, we're grossing 9.6 million average viewers. That growth alone is absolutely insane. Moolah has gone from just me with an idea to 450 stores leading the category across four models and performance apparel with 60 players, two WNBA players, and a full moolah corporate team. I mean, you can't ignore how crazy, the crazy growth that is happening in this space with the company, with women's basketball. And I think it's really because of this, of the new approach and new way people are seeing our game. You have investments from our Cuban and Dick Sporting Goods. What does it mean to have them as partners? Well, they're truly the best partners anyone could ask for. And I think they completely, from day one, have got understood the vision of the company, why it's so important, why we're so passionate about this space, and have been able to see that what we're opening up for women's basketball. And they've been incredibly helpful not only from a business perspective inside the doors, but also with helping us get the word out there when we were first launching our first products. All right, Natalie White, founder and CEO of Moolah Kicks. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Owen. That is it for today. Subscribe to Front Office Sports Today on your favorite podcast app and drop us a rating or review while you're there. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.